This is Tony Speaks. I am your host and the founder of Becoming Disciplined. I grew up in a loving home that lacked structure. Our house was filled with warm hugs and bad habits. As a child, the school system and my family acknowledged that I was extremely gifted. Despite those gifts, the hopes of my parents failed to materialize. I was the embodiment of a dream deferred until I woke up. One day, years ago, I experienced an awakening. I rediscovered a suppressed truth. Something was missing. Every failure, everything that haunted me as an adult boiled down to one character flaw. I lacked self-control. This one flaw had darkened every aspect of my life. I oftentimes knew what to do, but for some reason wouldn't do it. I had million dollar ideas that I had never executed. I had intelligence that was never made practical. From that point on, I embarked upon a journey, a never ending voyage to fix this broken piece of my character. This channel is not about one man though. It's about all of us awakening to the reality that in some aspect of our existence, we lack discipline. If you decide to run with me on this quest, we would discover great books, wise people, exciting adventures, and a better version of ourselves. Come and join us on the path to becoming disciplined. Today's program has been brought to you by the Prince William Perspective. As Virginia's only anti-racist online publication, the Prince William Perspective focuses on issues that are relevant to the Commonwealth's minority population. From government to education to financial literacy, the Prince William Perspective reaches all sectors of the community to inform and equip its citizens. Visit us at www.pwperspective.com or on Facebook and Twitter. We are the Prince William Perspective, the voice of the silenced minorities. And that is our first sponsor. Uh, today on Becoming Disciplined, we interview Dr. Chad Thornhill. Originally from Culpeper, Virginia, Dr. Thornhill transferred to Liberty University to complete a BS degree in religion and subsequently completed the MAR, MDiv, and PhD. Dr. Thornhill teaches courses in New Testament Greek and theology. He is the author of The Chosen People, Greek for Everyone, and the co-editor of Divine Impassibility. His areas of academic interest include ancient Christianity, apologetics, biblical languages, Second Temple Judaism, New Testament studies, Old Testament studies, and theology. He is the author of a forthcoming title on the Jewish background of the Apostle Paul's election text, which may already be out because I pulled that from previous bi uh, biography. <laughs> Dr. Thornhill lives in Lynchburg, Virginia. Dr. Thornhill and his wife, Carolyn, have one son and two daughters. In his spare time, Dr. Thornhill enjoys reading, rock climbing, and playing guitar and banjo. Dr. Thornhill has tried out for it and at least at one time trained heavily for the hit show, America Ninja Warrior. We will find out more about that later. So Dr. Thornhill, welcome to Becoming Disciplined. Thank you, glad to be here. Oh, thank you, thank you. For our listeners, I don't invite anyone on this show uh, who is not disciplined in at least one of the following areas, spirituality, mental, physical, emotional, uh, finance, calendar, home, and data. And I followed, uh, he doesn't know it, but I followed Dr. Thornhill from afar and he is, uh, he is very humble. He, he probably will, would you know, push off these uh, accolades, but he is very disciplined in several of these areas. Uh, Dr. Thorn, uh, Thornhill has a high level of discipline in a number of these areas, but we will circle back to that later. Before we talk about the broader issue of discipline, let's try to understand your context. Context is everything. Dr. Thornhill, what was it like growing up in Culpeper, Virginia? 
Culpeper, Virginia. So most people who know Culpeper know it because they pass it uh, between <laughs> Charlottesville and DC. <laughs> um, so we we aren't really known for almost anything. Um, since since I grew up and moved away, it's kind of become a uh, more of a satellite community for people that work in Northern Virginia. So it's grown a lot, um, but it's a very rural community. Um, so I grew up grew up in the county, you know, a house up in the woods. Um, and uh, you know, just surrounded by a lot of a lot of family, um, come from a you know mid middle class background. And uh, my dad worked for the town. Uh, my mom worked for a communications company um, before she she retired early. And kind of a long long story, but um, so yeah, I had just had a had a wonderful family. Um, was involved in sports as as a child, going up through middle school and. Yeah, that's that's a little bit of, you know, the the so to kind of put Culpeper on the map. Uh, when I was little, the two of the most exciting events as a child were, were when we got a Walmart and when we got a Blockbuster Video, and it's like oh. that was that was <laughs> city living, you know, for us. So that that tells you a little bit about what Culpeper was like. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, who in your early childhood development, who was the most disciplined person in your early childhood? Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if I can accurately give you the most, but uh, the the two that come to mind um, in hearing that question would be my my dad and my grandfather, and um, mainly for the reason that both of them just just had a you know really solid work ethic. Uh, I remember as a child when my granddad retired, he worked for for fifty years at a um, at a factory called Rochester Ropes, and he had a plaque. Um, I remember it was like it was either 25 or 50 years or, or something, but this really extended period of time, he didn't miss a day of work. So, you know, kind of tells you a lot about his his work, work ethic. He raised, uh, he and my grandma raised eight kids um, and in a small house. <laughs> um, so he, he was a man that um, was just committed to providing for his family. And that obviously rubbed off on my dad. Um, so my dad had a had a similar work ethic and um, that I think that was, you know, just seeing them, it wasn't something necessarily I was taught as much as shown, um, but that that certainly had an impression on me. Sure. Now, what sports did you play growing up? I played soccer um, going through up through middle school. I ended up being homeschooled in high school, um, not by not by choice, but just by by different circumstances. Um, but yeah, I was on uh, the. I went to a private school. We had a soccer team and. Did some travel soccer, um, so that was that was kind of my main my main sport growing up. Now, were you always gifted academically, or is that something that came later? Yeah, um, school did kind of come easy for me. Um, so, just like memory and facts and that that sort of thing is just is my son's the same way. Um, so it, it 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 did kind of come easy when I was homeschooled. Um, I kind of got pretty lazy, <laughs> so um, I didn't have good study ha habits in high school. I finished, you know, my GPA was fine and, and all of that when I finished, um, but I did get behind and kind of had to play catch up in my last year in order to, in order to graduate on time. Um, so my wife, my wife and I started dating in high school, so we've known each other for for a really long time now. And if you had asked, you know, the high school her who was dating this, you know, lazy homeschool kid. Um, or if you had told her like, oh, he's going to get a PhD one, like she just would have probably laughed at you. So, um, <laughs> part of, part of, for me, um, like what drove my like academic success, if you want to call it that was just the, the interest in it. So, uh, I majored in, in biblical studies in the undergrad and then, you know, did two master's degrees and a PhD and. It was just something that I that I loved. So um, that you know, people who I know people who get degrees, who get advanced degrees in areas, and it's just like it's just for a job. It's just to make money. It's strategic, and um, finding motivation to do that I think is a lot harder than finding motivation to do something that you're actually interested in and, and enjoy and are personally benefiting from. So. Um, I mean, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of a lot of hours and all of that. But it was, 
was always something that like I wanted to do. So it made it, it made it easier. Sure. Sure. So it def you definitely fall in the camp of uh, following your passion because that kind of makes yeah. it easier. Okay. Absolutely. That's good to know because there's people out in the world who debate, you know, whether that is there, yeah. that's accurate or not. And that's part of the pursuit of discipline. So you're giving us golden nuggets already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how, um, one of the things I've studied is I've tried to become a more disciplined person. Uh, Cause like I said, I am not, I have not, like the Apostle Paul, I have not apprehended, I have not gotten it, I'm, I'm in the pursuit. Um, but one of the key milestones is the, the ability to get a good night's sleep. Mm. And my question is, are you a good sleeper? And if you are, when and where did you develop your current sleep habits? Um, I was a great sleeper before we had kids. <laughs> we have three. Uh, they're a little older now. Our youngest is five. So... Uh, you know, from about 2010, probably till 2017 or 18, um, you know, it was like rare to get a full night's sleep just because one of the kids is usually, you know, usually up. Um, but I, I, I usually get about seven hours of sleep. Um, so, you know, I can, I can function on five. Um, I, I think seven to eight kind of for most people is, is ideal. Um, so I could be a little bit better in that area, but it's not something where I, you know, kind of like, I feel tired throughout the day or any, anything like that. Um, so my wife is, my wife is a rock star on sleep. Like she's eight to nine hours every night. She doesn't mess around. Like nothing gets in the way of her <laughs> and her sleep. Um, but yeah, my, my, my average, I think is probably a good seven hours every night. Awesome. 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 Yeah. Now. Uh, your academic pursuit of religious matters, would you consider that a divine calling, a, cur a curiosity, or both? I'd say it was both. Um, so coming, coming into college, I did have a sense that um, I was supposed to go into, into full-time ministry. Um, and even through, you know, from my first master's degree to my second, so, you know, like about about five and a half years into to my academic study, um, I still I still kind of thought primarily that would be a local church type ministry. Um, and as I was working in my MDiv, I just got a couple of opportunities to teach part time, and the teaching bug just just bit really hard. Um, so that kind of became became clearer just through the opportunity to do it. That that's where I felt like my calling and my my giftedness kind of came together. Um, and, and an opportunity, you know, the Lord, the Lord just opened an opportunity um, to be able to do it. And it's, you know, not, not a lot of people get to, to do something that they love. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. Uh, my dad used to say either do what you love or love what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, I've, I've been able to do what I love. So, <laughs> well, you've given us a golden nugget there. So what was your college experience like? Because we know that uh, Liberty is a little different in, in the college experience. So can yeah. you give us an education of how, uh, what was Liberty like when you were, when you were coming through? Yeah, Liberty, uh, Liberty is not a party school. Um, so not the, uh, <laughs> the traditional college experience. Um, it's, it's been, it's been, you know, kind of wild to be around here as long as I have. Um, so when I came, I'm, I'm estimating here, but we probably had somewhere between, you know, maybe three to 5,000 students on campus. So it was, it was a good size, you know, it's a, it was a large school for a Christian school, um, but not a large school compared to, to most large schools. Uh, our athletic programs were pretty, pretty terrible. We had a, we had a good basketball team at the time, but I, you know, I think our football team like won two games at one point uh, while I was here. So, um, you know, the, the sports scene wasn't really big and there, there weren't really a lot of campus, you know, recreation opportunities. So on the weekends, you know, we don't have co-ed dorms uh, even now at Liberty. Um, so on the weekends, we would like put a TV in a window and go sit in the grass and watch, you know, we didn't have TV on campus. So you'd have to watch a movie and it'd have to be, you know, PG-13 or, or, or below. Um, but we, you know, we just, we found ways to have fun and, and stay out of trouble. Um, so it was a good experience. Um, it, uh, you know, made, I, I kind of came to college with some friends and then, and then made some friends that have been, you know, lasting friendships. So, um, 
you know, there's just there's just a lot of really wonderful people around this place. So that's one of the reasons it's, um, you know, kind of kind of can keep you uh, can get you and keep you. <laughs> right. Right. So. Now, emotional discipline is uh, many consider the highest form of discipline because uh, it can be some consider the greatest predictor of success. As a professor, how do you manage your relationships with young people who are still maturing? Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting because uh, you know you talked about the the home birth versus professional. Um, I've always kind of been a patient person, but having kids like I think puts that to the test more than <laughs> more than anything. So so when I lose my patient, it tends to be at home. Uh, patients, it tends to be more at home than at than at work. Um, and there's one example of this that that kind of stands out, and I've just been fortunate to have um good mentors in this area so most of my academic career i've had some kind of an administrative role so like a department chair or, or a program director or something so i interact with students a lot more than just in the classroom um and and you know a lot of times it's just on things like scheduling or or issues with you know finishing their their course their course of study or something um but it it does occasionally involve like disciplinary things so one example of this, I, I had a student um, who just, I don't remember how they connected with me, uh, but they were having some issue with, with their studies. And, you know, this is a religion student. And uh, I, re I replied to them and they responded like just this bombastic email, like just filled with profanity, you know, like F-bombs and whatever. And it was like the response was completely out of line with like the severity of the issue. Like this wasn't, <laughs> this wasn't a major issue that they were facing. It was a minor issue and they had this, you know, huge blow up over email. So I went and talked to my Dean and, and we, and he's like, just bring, just bring him in and talk to him. Like uh, there's obviously something going on behind this. Right. So I, I brought the student in and, and I was just kind of like, where's all this coming from? Like, what's, what's going on? Right. And we just kind of broke down and opened up and like all this stuff's been going on at home. And, you know, he's like, I'm I just like, I'm trying to get kicked out of school right now. And, mm -hmm. and like, you know, so it was a good opportunity to kind of intervene in this, in this student's life. Um, so, you know, one of the things I've learned, um, there's kind of this, my wife's in the, in the counseling area. There's this, this phrase often you hear among counselors, like hurting people hurt people. Yes. Um, and so one of the things that I've learned is, um, you know, often the people that are hardest to engage with have the most, you know, the most amount of struggles in their background. And when you see it through that light, I think it, it just means that you're giving people, you know, it doesn't mean there aren't consequences, you know, for, for people's actions, but you're giving them a little more grace. You're giving them a little more of an opportunity to take those bad experiences and to, and to try to see them through, you know, a different, a different perspective. Um, so, you know, that, that doesn't mean every student I, I encounter like has some sort of radical transformative experience or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, just kind of giving students the benefit of the doubt and especially like this year of all years, like, you know, it's just been crisis after crisis after crisis. Right. And, um, not just our students, students all across the country. I mean, depression at record, record levels, suicide rates are climbing and like life's just hard right now. So just giving people the benefit of the doubt um, to hear their, you know, to hear their story and to try to empathize with them. And even if you can't change the situation, just to be, you know, just to give them a little grace in, in a moment like that, um, I think goes a long way for people. Amen. Well, what I hear there uh, is that your emotional discipline is rooted in your theology. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And everyone as, as the Imago Dei. Yeah. Um, Liberty has gone through many, like you just mentioned, has gone through many challenges in the past year. How do you stay focused through all of those distractions? Um, I'd like to say I have. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing that I think has, um, has, 
kept a lot of us sane around here are just are just some of the relationships. So, you know, I have I have three or four colleagues that, um, you know, we're we're all just like 100% transparent with each other. We have we have kind of trusting relationships that we've built over the years, and, um, you know, any one of those people know that any day of the week. They can come in my office and shut the door and just you know let it all out over whatever and there's no judgment <laughs> and i can do the same thing you know go, go into theirs and, and, and let it all out so um just having you know having like strong friendships uh where we can we can be transparent and kind of vent i think more than anything um has has kept us focused the, the timing of, of 2020 was was kind of good for me as well because I had I had a number of you know I had had basically um, seven or eight years working through like writing project after writing project after writing project and at the beginning of 2020 I very intentionally just said I'm not looking for any projects this year um, I need kind of a reset and I of course I had no idea what <laughs> what the events of the year would bring. Um, but I planned this year just to give myself some margins. And so, um, you know, just being able to enjoy life a little more, have a little more recreational time has, um, I think, helped me, helped me a lot with some of those things as well. Amen. Amen. Uh, at Becoming Disciplined, we examine discipline or organization in the following areas, spirituality, mental, physical, emotional, finance, uh, time or calendar, home organization or that and data organization where would you can what do you consider your strong point and what do you consider your weak point strong yeah my um the, the two that jump out the most uh as strong points would be um physical and financial um so you know coming from a middle middle class family we always had what we needed but we we didn't always have an abundance more than that um so i kind of learned to be a cheapskate and and even now like I'll, i wear clothes till they wear out you know have holes in them and, and whatever um so i don't really um you know video games are like my one weakness okay so i'm i've been like a nintendo guy my whole life so if there's a new zelda or mario game out like i'm gonna drop 60 bucks on it without, without <laughs> even doing it. um but other than that, I'm 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 pretty good. Physical, you know, with the Ninja Warrior thing, um, I've just had a, a pretty consistent training regimen. Um, particularly the last three years, I've been a lot more focused on on trying to have a consistent schedule. Um, so my my biggest weakness would probably be would probably be the the last one data if if I'm interpreting it right in the sense that like I spend way too much time on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and, you know, especially last week with the election and all the craziness, I think I think a lot of us wasted a lot of time checking for updates and, you know, going to news websites and all of that. Um, so there have been times when when my margins are thinner that, you know, I'll uninstall apps and block block certain websites that I know I'm going to waste time on. Um, but but over, you know, with with the everything since March, um, that's probably been one area that, that I could definitely uh, redeem a little bit more time out of is my, my social media usage. Now, we talked about how you got strong uh, from the spiritual standpoint of, you know, the academically, because you just followed your passion. How did you get strong uh, to become someone who could even compete for American Ninja Warrior? How did how did you make that transition from a young athlete to someone who, because uh, anyone who can even, as far as I'm concerned, anyone who can even go out for American Ninja Warrior, yeah. uh, it's uh, it's quite an achievement uh, because just just uh, I don't even think I could make it through two of those uh, beginning, you know, I don't think I could get through just the beginning running across the planks. So, uh, so how did you, how did you strengthen yourself in that area? Yeah. Um, so, you know, part of this, part of this goes into the, the thing with discipline to me is, is a lot of it is just balance. Um, so coming out of my PhD, I had gained about 25 or 30 pounds um, because my diet just became mostly fast food. Um, and it was just, 
you know, not to, not to make excuses, but it was when you don't have time, you know, when, when you have all of your time committed in one area, other areas tend to, tend to suffer. Um, I had all, I had been a fan of the show since it started. We're, we're in like the, we just finished the 12th season this year, um, this, this last week. So, and then even before that, it, it, um, the show was called Sasuke, uh, and it aired on this cable network called G4 TV. And Sasuke has been running in Japan. It's where the show originated. Um, it's been running for like 20 or 25 years. I don't know, some, some ridiculously long uh, amount of time. So like, I've always had kind of this interest, this fascination with this, with the sport. And when I finished my PhD, um, I was like, okay, I got to do something to like get, get my body back, uh, re reclaim my physical health. Um, and I just was watching the show one night and I, I don't remember seeing this before, but they were like, Hey, do you want to be on American Ninja Warrior? Here's how you can apply. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know. Like, I didn't know that was a thing. Like you could actually try to get, I thought they just picked people and, and whatever. Um, so that became my motivation for getting back in shape. Um, I started just with uh, what they call like hit hit exercises, high intensity interval training. Um, so it might be like a 20 minute workout, but it's just a lot of exercises and very little rest. Um, so mostly kind of like cardio focused. Um, I started counting calories um, and tracking what I was eating. And probably about six months to a year, um, kind of got the weight off and got back to, to the number I wanted to be at. And from that point, it was switching from, you know, losing weight to, to building strength. So started, I started rock climbing, um, which I, I still try to do once or twice a week. We have a gym here on campus, which is phenomenal. Um, and a lot of what has kept me motivated has been having friendships uh, in, those, in those areas. So some of the people that work at the, at the rock wall who I've known for years um, have, have helped me stay motivated. Um, because I see how they're pushing themselves, you know, and it makes me want to push myself. And then um, we have a, we actually have a gym that I've, I've helped um, develop here in town with specific Ninja Warrior obstacle training. Um, and I have, you know, three or four, three or four guys um, who are into the sport here in town. And so we, you know, we get together every now and then and then train together and push each other. And, you know, we've got a little Instagram group where we message each other and, um, so the communal aspect of it has has helped um, with with the motivation, but it's really just been the consistency over time of um, you know building strength. I, you know, probably when I started, I could maybe do like five pull ups, you know, if, if that. And um, I I just hit my highest record over the summer, um, doing thirty three in a row. So like that's. <laughs> So it's been a it's been an eight year journey, but it's really just consistency over time. Uh, and anything you put you anything you put work into with consistency over time is going to yield, you know, big results over time. And people will be like, oh wow, you know, how did you? And it's just it's just staying, you know, staying committed over a long period of time. So, wow. Uh, just for everyone who's watching, who. Uh... Who does, who's not into pull-ups, the Marine Corps standard for excellence is 20. So he just said, he just talked about doing 33. That's that's pretty impressive. Uh, and then also, I just wanna leave like a little golden nugget for people. Uh, the professor mentioned uh, starting small, having a big goal, and then having a group of people, uh, a community of people to encourage you. Those, all of that is in the science uh, of of becoming more disciplined in an area, starting small, uh, uh, having a big goal, but then also having a community of interest to encourage you. So I just wanted to just repeat that for our you know, for our customers or our, our listeners today. Yeah, uh, I, I do that even with my, you know, my Greek students. Greek is is the thing I've been teaching the longest, and my every time I get a new group of students in their first semester, one of the first things I tell them. Is and you you might have heard this before, but this you know this question: How do you eat an elephant? <laughs> right, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> Amen. Right. Amen. So, so I tell Amen. them, Greek is our elephant, and it's all about figuring out what are the small bites we can take. But that's true. You know, any big goal you set, it's just what's the next bite? What's the next bite? You know, what's the next small? Because if you try to eat the elephant all at once, right? I mean, it's not going to go well. 
Um, sure. But if you take if you take the small bites over time, you know you can you can chip away at big goals. So that that for me has been a huge part, both you know both in my academic work um, and in some of the other areas that I've um, kind of been committed to to seeing progress in my life. Mm. Well, uh, I'm going to have a lack of discipline here because um, I told myself when we started this podcast that, uh, you know, because I love the Lord and uh, I'm very overt with my faith. And I, I promised myself I was going to be a little more uh, subtle with this particular venture, but I can't help myself because I have a scholar here <laughs> and I can't let, you know, I just can't let you get away without me asking this question. As an expert, uh, so so everyone who's not interested in, in in church stuff, just fast forward for the next seven to eight minutes, okay? But I can't help myself. Um, as an expert on Second Temple Judaism and Koine, and just for anyone, you know, Koine is the the ancient Greek language that's used in the Bible, or or our early earliest translations. As someone who knows the context of Jesus in his own time. Does it ever bother you how divorced the American Christian community is from the understanding of the ancient Hebrew culture or that ancient Hellenistic culture? Yeah, um, the, 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 the question of Christianity and, and culture is a, is a big one and it's an ever changing one because culture is always changing. Um, there, I think there are, um, you know, some pretty, pretty clear disconnects. One, one of the major ones being, um, you know, the, the ancient world that the Bible comes from is a very community first kind of oriented culture. And in the American context, we're very individual first. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's one of the major ones that, that I think causes a lot of the problems that we see today. But, but on the other hand of that, you know, you read just about any any letter that's written to churches in the New Testament, and there are things in their culture that the New Testament writers are trying to tell, you know, trying to break them of. Um, so, you know, Corinthians is, is probably one of the best examples because there were so many issues there. Um, but every church, you know, Paul or, or Peter or James, whoever they're writing to, um, they're they're trying to break them of certain cultural beliefs that have been you know, ingrained in the in the systems around them that aren't fitting for people who are who are following Jesus. And so, you know, I think on the other hand, um, we tend to maybe lift up the the early church like it was something pure or or perfect. Um, but the the early church was a work in progress, just like the American church is. Um, so, the you know, the, the real challenge just becomes um, not only recognizing those things, but what are steps that we can take to, to build in some correctives. And I think there are some areas, uh, you know, in the church that, that have had good progress in the last couple of decades, and there are some areas that seem to be getting worse. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, we face some maybe unique challenges in our culture. Um, but the the early church had had cultural cultural challenges just like we do. Okay, hey, that's that's awesome. That's good to hear. Uh, or it's good it's good to understand. Yeah. As, <laughs> as someone who has recently drilled down uh, into the Apostle Paul's election text, after your research, are you uh, are you leaning more Calvinistic, uh, Molinism, or Armenian? What 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 did your research uh, uh, show you or demonstrate to you? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a big question, um, and I don't. Uh, this is this is what I always joke with my my students and and my colleagues is, you know, I don't I don't wear a label. Uh, it's just you know I'm just teaching what the Bible says. So, um, <laughs> but it's interesting because when we um, Josephus was a was an ancient Jewish Jewish historian. He's roughly contemporary with with Jesus and Paul. And he talks about um, the three major groups within Judaism, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, as being on a spectrum as it, you know, as it relates to this question of, you know, like predestination. What does God determine versus what, is, what do humans do? And just 
Cephas says the Essenes were, you know, essentially uh, determinists. They thought everything was predetermined by God. Uh, the Sadducees were essentially everything was, was free will. And he said the Pharisees occupied this, this ground in the middle. Um, and while, while there are, you know, scholars have, have challenged some of the things, challenged some of the ways that Josephus frames that, um, I think in kind of a basic way, that, that's where I see Paul. Um, he's, he's somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, so Paul, could, Paul can't be a Calvinist or a Molinist or, or an Arminian because none of those things existed when Paul was around. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he clearly has the sense of God being, uh, you know, sovereign of God being in, there's no threat to, you know, to his plan. Um, but he also, you know, carves out a, a pretty big space for human responsibility and, um, the, the fact that we're all given given a role to play in this as well. Um, so in a in a very kind of kind of basic, unnuanced way, um, I would see Paul, you know, kind of somewhere in the middle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now this is a golden nugget for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Thornhill follows a man named Jesus. And just like Jesus, he was very disciplined in following uh, Jesus because he did not allow me to box him into humanistic, <laughs> uh, humanistic or religious categories. He transcended the question, amen, in the oh, same yeah. way that Jesus would have done. Because I, I imagine uh, if they had asked Jesus in his time, Jesus would have, would have uh, given a spiritual transcendent uh, answer, just like the way that you gave me, uh, Dr. Thornhill. So you, you were following the person that... Uh, you followed the person that 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 is your that is our master. Um, have your academic pursuits hindered your ability to fellowship? Sometimes there can be a giant divide between academics and the populace in 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 I guess you could say normal Christianity. Yeah, um, I've never I've never really thought of that question before. Um, I mean, so my wife and I we. You know, and I say involved. Um, the the pandemic has changed what what involved means um, for for church, um, but we've been a part of a, a church called Grace Church here in Lynchburg for I don't know probably probably close to fifteen years now. Um, and you know, we attend a life group there. Um, there there are probably mostly college educated people in our life group, but there are some people who aren't. Um, we have older folks, younger folks, and it, they're just, you know, they're, they're just kind of like our church family. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think it has there, you know, probably the biggest obstacle for me. And, and I talk, um, I talk a lot about this with, with my students was um, for people who, who pursue, pursue theological education. I think like being, becoming cynical about the church is very, is very natural. Um, and it's easy to kind of nitpick, you know, what a pastor says, or, you know, why does this church do things this way when it looks like they should do this instead? And um, so for a, for a while, I kind of like was hunkered down in, in that cynicism and um, had to, had to kind of find a way to, to, to break out of it. And, you know, part of that you know, part of that for me, I think what, what was interesting about that it, is it was going from a master's to a PhD, where some of that cynicism fell apart. And, you know, one of the, one of the things about <laughs> academic work is like, the more you study and the deeper you go, the more you find out you, you don't really know anything yeah. about anything. Um, yeah. And sure. so it, you know, education can, in, in a lot of cases, does, um, you know, I think like fill some people with pride, um, but but most of my colleagues that I, you know I work alongside of every day, some of whom have have more than one doctoral degree, uh, you know, some of them written dozens of books, you know, on TV and radio and whatever all the time, um, and they're you know some of them are, are just like the most humble people <laughs> you'll you'll ever meet. Um, so there's. You know, I, I think there's, I think one of the challenges that I had to face was like my spiritual growth had to catch up to my intellectual growth. And 
I had knowledge, but not maturity. And it was actually gaining more knowledge, which showed me how much knowledge I didn't have that helped, <laughs> helped um, the maturity, um, I think, try to catch up. Amen. Yeah, it's painful for me to listen to my first sermons that I preached. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> because it, it's amazing. It also shows the grace of God because uh, yeah. there were times where I was preaching and now I know that I did not really understand that text. Yeah. But then somehow God protected me where what I was saying was actually the, the, the thesis was accurate. Right. But even though I really had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So it's amazing how God protects us with that. Um, you teach Christian apologetics. And for those that don't know, it's uh, the apologia, the defense of the gospel. Um, I, and it's a, it's a form, for those who are listening in, it's a form of, um, it's the field of Christianity where the, you know, people learn how to defend their God, the, you know, defend and debate um, um, the faith. Um, I've noticed that in the apologetics field, and this is just my personal observation, maybe you have a totally different one, that there's many people who don't necessarily have strong emotional intelligence. Uh, I kind of used to use an analogy. It's uh, like people who learn how to do martial arts then, and then once they learn how to do martial arts, they begin to fight with everybody. Yeah. Uh, have you seen that? And if so, how do you think we can remedy this? And let me give you a compliment. One of your students is one of the most emotionally intelligent people I've seen in the apologetic community, Miss Lisa Fields. Yeah. So, uh, so I kind of give you some a great, you know, you know, because that's a student of yours who is one of the rare emotionally intelligent people in the apologetics field. Because uh, she's always very calm and level-headed, and and not doing anything to embarrass the the, the faith of Christianity, and uh, and you seem to be in that same vein of of being emotionally intelligent. Um, how do you think we can fix this, or is it really a problem? And am I just imagining things? <laughs> yeah. First of all, I, uh, Lisa's a rock star, and I, I won't I won't take any credit for um, for who she is. So. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend like she, she learned, maybe she did, but um, she was, she was pretty bright before, uh, before I met her. Um, so I do think it's a problem. Um, and um, there's, there's a author, he's actually a, a philosopher, but he writes in the area of, of Christianity and culture a lot, named, uh, names, named James K.A. Smith. Uh, he goes by Jamie, Jamie Smith, um, who has this great way of putting this that, you know, for too long humans have, or, or Christians have kind of viewed this question of humans and faith as like, like humans are brains on a stick. Sure. Um, and, and what he means by that is like, you know, our, the, the cognitive piece of us, the thinking piece of us is an important piece of us, but it isn't the only piece of us. You know, there's a feeling piece of us as well. There's a heart along with the, with the head and apologetics for a long time um, kind of fell into the trap of modernism. So like, you know, coming out of the enlightenment, um, modernism very much sort of prized human reason and the ability to kind of figure everything out. And the, you know, postmodernism, which we're in, which we're in now and, and has all of its other own challenges um, kind of came and, and humbled modernism a lot. Um, and there's, you know, there's there's good things in both things in, in each of those um, each of those kind of worldviews or, or, or periods, but um, I I think there's been more work done probably in the last five or ten years to try to help apologetics catch up and to get out of this modernistic you know clutch that if we just have the right information and the right arguments that um, you know, it's going to solve people's problems with with Christianity, and they're even going. I have a I have a colleague who um, co-wrote a book with a former colleague of mine called called Apologetics at the Cross, um, where they, you know, their their argument is our apologetics should be cruciform. Um, it should be sacrificial. In other words, it's, it should 
um, look like Jesus. It's not just about ideas. The ideas are important, but it's not just about that. And, and he's actually doing another, the same two colleagues are doing another project on Augustine right now. And um, I think one of the things that they're, they're finding is, is love is really at the center of how Augustine, Augustine viewed apologetics. And I think putting a bigger place for love, you know, Jesus said, right, how are people going to know you're my followers is if you're loving one another. Um, and we, I think, undersold in a lot of ways how important compassion and empathy um, and, and love are as a demonstration of the, the truthfulness of Christianity. So I do see, I do see that there is, um, there's a shift happening. Sure. I don't think we're there yet, um, but more and more authors, I think, are, are trying to, to put some corrective on this over-intellectual um, form of apologetics that, you know, again, kind of seems to view people as, as brains on a stick. <laughs> wow, that's so deep what you just said, and I, I really feel that answer that uh, I'm hearing so many apologists focusing on the dynamics of answering or making the argumentation, and if we don't stop to truly love the people that we're responding yeah. to, it's going to come off the wrong way. So, uh, Wow, that's a that's a truly profound uh, golden nugget there that I'm hoping people will will, will latch on to. I mean, yeah. it's it's very simple, but it's it's one of those fundamentals that it's so easy to get past. You know, yeah. uh, switching gears here a little bit. Um, as you were training for American Ninja Warrior, you suffered a tough injury or a disease. Where did you learn about what did you learn about yourself as you dealt with that hurdle? Yeah, so I, I had kind of two. Um, two series of things in, uh, was, let's see, I think it was 2016, uh, I had a herniated cervical disc. So, you know, most people hear about like herniated discs in the back, you get a bulging disc. You're, you're I've, you know, one of the biggest things is I've learned a lot about the human body that I didn't know before, but between each of your vertebrae, you have, you know, they kind of call them like jelly donuts. You have these little squishy things that, um, as you age, dry out. And um, if your vertebrae, you know, compact too much on that, that, it can kind of squeeze out the back and it pushes on your, either on your nerves on the side or, or even on your spinal cord and can just cause all, all kinds of terrible issues. Um, so one of the, you know, one of the biggest blessings in all of that is there's a, there's a wonderful lady who's a physical therapist in town who's like just brilliant that um, my wife had a friend who was a physical therapist who when this happened said he needs to go see her like no question get him in with with this lady um, she's super knowledgeable um, she has some really good therapy techniques so it's about four you know the I, I was basically in bed for like two months um, so I, I like couldn't move my neck at all <laughs> was in this kind of crooked position because the pain was just so intense if I moved the wrong way. And it was, it was compressing um, my radial, the radial nerve, which goes down into your bicep and into your, your thumb. So at my worst, I couldn't, you know, and I'd been doing the, the ninja stuff and rock climbing for like three or four years at this point. At my worst, I couldn't take a gallon of milk and pour it. Like mm. my, my nerve was so damaged in my arm like so when your nerves are damaged your muscles just don't work sure it's like it's like they're just turned off wow. um so it was it was two months of like debilitating pain and then it just became um like getting the function back so i did i i did about four or five months of therapy and you know by by the summer of that year was able to start kind of training again. I still don't honestly know how it happened. I was packing for, for a um, trip. I was supposed to be going to, to New Orleans that day for a conference. And just that morning, like just something snapped. Uh, and, and it was, it was awful. Um, so, you know, recovered from that almost a year to a date. I, that was all in my right arm, almost a year to the day. I start getting this terrible, the same kind of pain. So I knew it was nerve pain. 
in the back of my shoulder blade. I started getting some numbness in my left arm. And then a few weeks later, it started, go, you know, started having numbness in my right arm. And I chased, uh, you know, chased the diet. It wasn't as debilitating, um, but it was, it was difficult. So I wasn't sleeping. I could, I could still go to work, uh, but wasn't sleeping well. It was about another four or six month period. And literally, because I started counting at some point, went to like 14 different doctors. So nerve doctors, spine doctors, I mean, all over the place. And some were like, it's this. And then I'd go to the next doctor and say, no, it's not that, it's this. And, you know, all these people are kind of contradicting each other. Um, but I went back to my physical therapist and she said, no, she said, I'm, you know, this is thoracic outlet syndrome. I'm, I, don't, I don't have a doubt about it. Um, and so it took me, it took me till this past summer to actually get a, a, a diagnosis from a doctor, but my therapist has been treating it as that. And it's, just, it's a nerve compression disorder that, um, Unfortunately, it can occur in like six or seven different places between your spine and your shoulder. Mm. Um, and because of that, it's like notoriously very difficult to diagnose. Um, when they do surgery, it's often exploratory. So it's just, we're gonna cut you open and kind of see if we can figure out where the problem is. Right. And some people do surgery and, and don't actually get any, any relief. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of got another set of therapy tools and um, worked myself back together. And for about six, six months, felt like totally fine again. And then uh, about, you know, a year and two months later, so back in January of this year, it, it flared up again. Um, but I kind of felt like I knew a little more of how to, uh, how to address it. And I had kind of assuming like all my problems were fixed, stopped some of my therapy stuff. Um, so from, from January to April of this year, um, was working through that again and more or less since April, I've, I've been doing really well. I, you know, kind of been training harder than ever, but I'm doing my therapy like three times a week from now till I die, because <laughs> I want to, I want to make sure, uh, that this, this doesn't flare up again. Um, so it's been a, that's been a really, you know, the first one was very clear very direct action plan. And we just went from point A to point B and, and things got better. Um, but with this last one, it's been, it's just been a super crazy roller coaster um, trying to trying to figure it out. Um, but yeah, I'm thankful, you know, the last, last few months have been good. So I've been enjoying them as much as possible. <laughs> now, um, like God in the whirlwind uh, in Job, in the book of Job, did God speak to you during any of that pain? Oh, did, definitely. Did he reveal anything? Definitely. Um, it, it, it uh, you know, was a further humbling experience. Um, you know, things, things like, you know, it, there were kind of two things that came out of it. One was, um, uh, you know, so to, to, to humble me and, and um, kind of recalibrate, you know, Moments like that kind of have like help put everything in perspective, you know. Um, so part of it was just kind of recalibrating priorities in my life, but there was um, just personally like uh, a significant growth in in my ability to like empathize with people. Um, and you know, part of the the conversation we had at the beginning. Um, you know, part of my growth in that area has been directly impacted by, uh, you know, by this. And it's, you know, it's, it's changed my, my perspective in another way because um, often, you know, often we think about like God's goodness as attached to what he gives us. <laughs> Right. So we kind of we kind of judge or measure him based on our, our situation in life. And it it shifted me to this realization that like, no, God is the good thing. Amen. <laughs> Not just the good things we get from God, but knowing God is the good thing. And um, regardless of, you know, regardless of, of the circumstances that we're in. Um, so it's it's. You know, it's weird to say this, but like 
one of the hardest experiences of my life affirmed God's goodness more than it, it had before. Um, and, you know, a lot of people might, might hear someone say that and think it should be the opposite. Like, why would God let these things happen? You know, why would God let us suffer? Um, but it's, it's deepened my, you know, confidence in the, in the supreme goodness of God, um, in all things. So it's, you know, if you were to rewind me four years and say, all oh, this is going to happen, you know, and, uh, here are the good things that are going to come out of it. Do you still want it to happen? I'm not sure I would, I would still plan, <laughs> plan the events the same way. Um, but I've seen how, how God's been working in all of it. And, uh, you know, he's, he, I, I think often of, um, Romans eight, uh, that I, to me, the, the better translation of the text off, you know, I had memorized it as all things are working together for good. I think the better translation is God is working all things for good. Um, so God can take bad things and, and bring good out of them. And that principle um, theologically has really been affirmed in, in my life in the last couple of years. Hmm. Powerful, very powerful. I think what if, I think Francis Chan said, uh, you know, crucify your own son to redeem the souls of men. I wouldn't do it that way, you know. So, <laughs> so God's plans can be very different than ours. Uh, so, uh, you know, so where are you currently with your pursuit of being an American Ninja Warrior? Yeah, I am. I'm working on my application right now for season thirteen. Um, I feel I feel more ready right now than I've than I've ever felt. Um, the you know this season was was strange. Um, usually they have about 700 competitors. They start filming in March. Um, so literally the week they were supposed to start filming was the week that the lockdowns started. Um, so they ended up putting together a season with, um, you know, they, they filmed it all in one location with about 125 or so competitors. So it was a much smaller season. Um, I had one of, one of our, one of my, uh, training buddies, uh, got to compete this year, um, the one who previously had didn't, but they've told him they're going to do everything they can to get him in for next year. Uh, so I'm just hoping I, I get to get in on the fun um, with him if he gets called. But it's, you know, they usually have like 70,000 of people apply and they have 700 people that get that get called. So you you every year have about a 1% chance of, <laughs> of actually making it on the show. Um, so this is my seventh year applying. Um, you know, there, there's, there's maybe some significance to that number and maybe not. Um, but I'm just, I'm just trying to enjoy the journey, uh, as much as anything right now. So every time I get to do a competition or, or, you know, mess around in the gym or whatever, um, it's just, I'm just so grateful to after, after, you know, all the challenges I've been through the last few years to still be able to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to focus on the gratefulness and not on the, not on, uh, the chance of, of getting to compete on the show. So I hear you. I'm going to skip back past a few questions because I know you have uh, uh, some, some meetings coming up. Uh, what book do you recommend within the Bible for people who are seeking discipline in their life? Mm. Um, I would, I, you know, maybe it's just because this is one of my favorite books, but but James probably comes to mind um, for a number of reasons. I think I think every book in the Bible, to some extent, addresses this. Um, but uh, you know, J James in particular, you know, he has this this whole chapter on controlling the tongue uh, and and talking about uh, you know all the destruction that that our words can can bring. Um, so yeah, I think it's a short book, so it's it's easy for people to kind of work through. And I think if you work through it, beginning to end, um, a lot of the themes that that we've been talking about today are probably going to stand out. Awesome. And what book outside the Bible do you recommend that after you read it, it helped you become more disciplined? Is there a secular book that uh, helped you in that area? Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a secular book, but but two of my favorite authors that um you know so there's this area in in um christianity called spiritual spiritual discipline or spiritual formation 
Um, two of my favorite authors in that area are Dallas Willard. Um, he's written a lot on, on spiritual disciplines. So spiritual disciplines are, um, you know, means of, of deepening our, our spiritual walk and our spiritual growth through specific intentional practices. So, you know, things like solitude, fasting, um, uh, you know, studying scripture, prayer, um, those are those are some of the, some of the major disciplines. Um, and my other favorite favorite author um, is Henry Nowen, who um, has kind of an incredible life story, um, but he writes on a very practical level that's that's really deep. And um, you know, Nowen writes about a lot of like heavy things in life, like death and suffering, um, but really, really puts it into, um, you know, so much, I, so much I think of, of discipline and healthy personhood is learning to reframe, <laughs> reframe um, the way that we see certain things in life. Um, so even, you know, I've been reading now and recently on death, and, and he talks about, you know, in the death of a loved one, you can almost grow closer to that person. Um, because the way that he, the way that he, explains well how can that be is okay well if your loved one is now with christ and christ is in you you know there's a deeper sense in which you're connected to that person now than you would have been um you would have been before and so he has he has you know a marvelous way of of reframing um a lot of the really difficult things in life and when you can change your perspective on it um it changes the way that you you live through it. Wow, that's powerful. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on the subject of discipline or any closing thoughts at all uh, having to do with this interview? Yeah, I, I just thank you. I've, I've enjoyed chatting with you, Tony. Um, I would say, uh, you know, for, for people, whatever it is, whatever the thing is that, that you want to see change or growth in your life, um, write it down. <laughs> you know, write it down, make a plan. Um, because without, without a plan, it's just a hope. Sure. Um, you know, it's a wish, but if it's, if it's something that you actually want to see, um, a material change in your life, um, figure out a way to do it and find some people to help, help keep you accountable. Um, accountability, you know, being accountable, sometimes we think of as like a negative thing, but if it's something, if, if you can find joy in what you're doing um, and you can find other people who find joy in it, it's going to make the journey, you know, so much easier. Um, so make a plan, find some partners to walk through it and then figure out what are the good parts, you know, the good parts, it might be hard work, it might be painful, uh, but what are the good parts of it that you can focus on to help make the journey, you know, as, as enjoyable as possible. Well, uh, Dr. Thornhill, I just can't thank you enough. I see why so many students of yours, uh, they just adore you. And, uh, and I see why, uh, you know, I, I see uh, how blessed Liberty is to have you. And uh, I've been touched several times during this interview. Uh, matter of fact, I had to exercise a lot of discipline not to, not to get emotional at a couple of moments because <laughs> the Lord really used you at a couple of moments there. And uh, I just want to thank you so much. And uh, I, uh, I truly look forward to seeing you on American Ninja Warrior. And I, I look forward to continue, continuing to see the fruit of all your students that you teach when they come out and the impact that they're gonna have in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. So thank you again, Dr. Thornhill. I, I believe we learned a lot from this interview and we thank you in our search for uh, self-improvement and our search for that fruit of temperance, that, that yeah. fruit of self-control. So thank you again, Dr. Thornhill. Thank you very much. Hello, I just wanted to take this opportunity to point out five golden nuggets from today's podcast that if you follow these five nuggets, they will make you more disciplined. These five golden nuggets are critical at becoming disciplined. The first golden nugget is that Dr. Thornhill followed at a young age something that he was passionate about. To use the old adage, when you are passionate or when you love your job, 
You never work a day in your life. The second, third, and fourth golden nuggets were regarding his pursuit of the American Ninja Warrior. He started small, he had a goal, and he had a support group. And the fifth golden nugget was when I asked him a tough theological question. His answer did not remind me of a college professor. It reminded me of the savior that he follows. And sometimes discipline is following the good examples that you have been given. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I hope that something was said to help you on your path to becoming disciplined. Oh, my name is Courtney. The big guy, that's my dad. The little girl, that's my sister, Nadia. Daddy has struggled with all his life. He says different now. He said he wants to walk me and my sister down the aisle. He said he wants to be a grandfather. Why he's becoming disciplined. What's your story? Where do you need discipline? What do you need to overcome? Yes, sir, daddy.